Father, we pray Your blessing specifically, Lord, on the teaching and the speaking of Your Word. And we ask Jesus for clarity and for understanding. We ask, Holy Spirit, that uh, You would teach us. And we truly do, all of us together. We gather here, Jesus, at Your feet. And we, we pray we might learn of You and be drawn to You even more. Help us, Lord, to continue to develop and to hear and, and have an understanding of those who are lost. And Father, bless this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, we are in chapter 11. I saw something on Facebook the other day. I, I have to share with you. Two students in my youth ministry back in Virginia in the early 1990s, Chad and Jenny, Ended up getting married. And Monday, Jenny posted a second grade class assignment that was completed by her daughter, Brianna. Okay, so Brianna, the second grader, and the assignment was entitled Goals. In her class, in the public school, and all the kids in her class had to fill in the following blanks. There was several blanks at the top of the sheet and then an empty spot at the bottom for a picture to be drawn. And so the blanks were, my goal is two, and then they had to fill that in. And here are three steps I will take to meet my goal. And she had to fill in, or all the kids had to fill in those three steps. And then draw a picture depicting what it is that was their goal. So Brianna wrote, my goal is to teach people about God. Here are three steps I need to meet that goal. Number one, read the Bible. Number two, listen to my teacher in Sunday school. Number three, meet new people. Now this kid's got it. I mean, that's it. It is so simple. And what followed, she drew this picture of herself holding a Bible, witnessing to a friend who's wearing a t-shirt with a little 1960s peace sign on it. It's a really cute picture. She's got the little Bible open. Well, here's what happened. Her teacher looked at the assignment and said, No, that's not what I meant. By goals, I meant something that will make you a better person, Brianna. Brianna, second grade, replied, Mom, she's telling her mom about this later, this will make me a better person. I don't care if my teacher's happy, I just know God will be happy. (laughs) Praise God for little hearts like Brianna's. And kids who get it, the message is so simple, a child can deliver it. And all we have to do is have hearts and minds like children, and we too can deliver the message. Read your Bible. Listen to your teacher in Sunday school. Meet new people. Because if you're reading your Bible and listening to your teacher in Sunday school, as you meet new people, guess what you're going to want to talk about? You're going to want to share Jesus. The message is just too good to keep to ourselves. And this is the same message, by the way, that the preacher has been methodically leading us up to in this sermon we call the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, it's a 12-chapter sermon. And it's been remarkable. I don't know about you, but for me, absolutely remarkable. Koheleth, the Hebrew word for the preacher, has brazenly covered the despair and the futility and the emptiness of life under the sun. I mean, he has hit it wholeheartedly. He has spoken it as though it's his own. He has walked it out before us. This whole idea of, of the vanity of life With God at a distance or not acknowledged at all, the secular humanist. We've watched this, we've listened to it. In chapter 9, he took us right to the precipice last Wednesday night. We saw this, that precipice, that edge of vanity. 
And then in chapter 10, he shifted gears a bit and he calmed the matter, inviting us to some common sense. Remember that? We talked about it. It's interesting. Suddenly in chapter 10, it's common sense. It's just common sense proverbs, if you will, through that chapter. He's been speaking of the vanity and the meaninglessness and the emptiness of life and then some common sense. Why? Because the Lord would say to you and to me, even in our vanity, He would say, come, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. So God brings common sense into it. Let's just, you don't have to be weird or out there or strange. Let's just talk reasonably. Your life is not working. So let me in. And let's see how it works with my involvement. Now, Kohalath is going to quicken the pace in these last two chapters with three final thrusts of his sermon. Three challenges that take us to the very end of the matter. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down or just think these through. The first thrust is be bold. Be bold. Knowing all that we know, understanding everything that we've learned from the preacher thus far, be bold. Chapter 11, verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls to the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. (laughs) It's a pretty obvious one there. Verse 4, He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God, who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether the morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. In essence, the context here, what he's saying is step out. Be bold. Do something with yourself. Don't just stand there. Be bold. Frank, where do you get that? Well, let's take a look at each one of these individually. Verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it, he says, after many days. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters. What is he talking about there? Well, it's a Jewish mindset. So if we go back and we look at some Jewish commentary on it, it's interesting what they have to say in the Talmud and the Midrash. The rabbinical scholars scholars believe that this is an encouragement to generosity. To cast your bread upon the waters... Now, on the surface of the waters, for you'll find it after many days, is in essence saying, be generous. Be generous in your life. Because later on, you might find that bread floating right back your way. When you need it, your generosity is going to come back around to you. And that's what the rabbis believe about this. The Midrashim, which is the Jewish commentary of the Hebrew Scriptures, it tells the following story related to this verse. It says, the rabbi Akiva saw a ship wrecked, which carried in it one who was learned in the law. He finds him again, actively engaged in Cappadocia. He asks the one learned in the law, What whale has vomited thee out upon dry land? (laughs) How hast thou merited this? He's saying, How'd you get out alive? I heard that your ship was wrecked, and here you are preaching in Cappadocia. How'd you do it? The scribe, learned in the law, thereupon related that when he went on board the ship, he gave a loaf of bread to a poor man who thanked him for it, saying, As thou hast saved my life, may thy life be saved. 
So as you've done for me, may it be done to you. And so the old rabbis, they draw a link between a person's generosity and their blessing. The amount that they give in their life and their salvation, not necessarily eternal, but their salvation in life, their rescue, their provision. It's kind of an older way of saying what we say, what goes around comes around. And if you are a generous person, that generosity is going to come back your way. But I thought about this verse some more, and I thought, well, that's, that's good. But using the biblical commentary, what is bread a picture of in the Scriptures? What does bread tend to imply to us? Any guesses, any thoughts? The Word of God. The Word of God. God's Word. God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says, He humbled you and He let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Do you realize that manna was not only a, a pattern of feeding God's care for the people, it was also a living parable for the people. As the manna came from God, so the Word of God, everything that proceeds out of His mouth, what comes from Him, this will feed you. And the Lord was teaching the people that. Jesus got that. In fact, He knew it. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1-4. through 4. Remember when He was tempted? Led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible tells us He became hungry. And the tempter came to Him and said, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But He answered and He said, Deuteronomy 8.3. Well, He didn't say that. He said the verse. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So little Brianna was right. Mom, this will make me a better person. Giving God's word to somebody else will make me a better person. Casting my bread upon the waters is a good thing to do because as I give the word out, guess what's going to happen? The word is going to come back to me. The more I give out the word, the more the word is available to me when I need it. When I'm struggling, when I don't have words to, to, to convey my heart or my struggles or, or what's going on in my life, if I'm casting the word on the water, it's going to come back to me. If you want a better life, God connected the word to success. That's what he told Joshua. He said, Joshua, if you continue in my word, you'll be successful. If you want a better life, if you want a more secure future, cast the bread of the Word upon the sea of humanity. Because the more we share the Word, the more available it will be when we need it. On the flip side, there's a warning, I think, that is underneath the surface of the waters here. If we don't cast our bread, it won't be there when we need it. If we're not engaged in the eating of the Word and the giving out of the Word, it's not going to be there. Use it or lose it. Amos chapter 8, verse 11, the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. A famine's coming. And I believe it's here. And you've heard me talk about this. There is a famine in the land, a famine for the Word of God, because churches are not using the Word of God like they one time did. People are not in the Word of God like they one time were, and therefore the Word is not being cast on the waters. And as people are starving and they're thirsty and they're hungry for the Word, they're not getting it. There's a famine for it. 
Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. What does that mean? Teachers who will go for 15 minutes and be done. <laughs> teachers who will teach three-point sermons, light and easy fluff, and be out the door. Because that's all the people really want to handle. A famine for the Word. Now, in the same vein of giving out that it would come back to you, verse 2, the preacher continues, Divide your portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Now, some have tied this to investment. In fact, this is a favorite verse right here of biblical financial programs. It's not a bad verse to use for that thing, to say, you know, investments, you want to diversify, have a diverse portfolio. But you know, I think if if we apply it there, though the application is alright, we miss the real power of it. The reality is, we need to diversify our investments in relationships. Diversify your investment in relationships. Jesus said in Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. What do you mean, Jesus? Hey, the more you invest in relationship with other people, the more they're going to invest in you as well. The more you measure out, that's the the standard that people will use with you. If you measure out much in relationship, they're going to want to measure right back. You can diversify your investments financially and watch the whole stock market plummet. And it really doesn't matter if you've diversified into 7, 8, 20, or 30. If it's all going down, it's all going down. Or you can diversify your relationships. Pouring into other people's lives who in turn will desire to pour into your life as well. Now you might say, well Rick, that sounds a little self-serving. You know, you're telling me to pour into someone's life so that I get something back. Yeah, actually I am. Not because it's self-serving, but because it's a reality. If I am generous to others, in real life they're going to want to be generous to me. And didn't Jesus say, in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And there's nothing wrong with saying, boy, you know, I'd like to be treated well, so I'm going to treat other people well. I'd like to have generous love coming my way, so I'm going to love generously. So be bold. Be bold with your generosity. Be bold investing in the lives of others. Be bold in the way you give out the Word of God. Verse 3. He says, in one of the most obvious verses in Scripture, but it's for a reason. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. Okay? Everybody got that? I want to make sure you're tracking, because that's a tough one to grasp. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Again, there's a flair for the obvious here. But these are two examples Kohalath is using to show of things that we have no control over. We see the clouds full of rain and either it's going to rain or it doesn't. Who has the control? Who can unzip the cloud to let the water out? And when a tree falls, who, who on North Whidbey Island controls that? You know? Trees just go down. Did I share that we had a, a big tree right out here by our gate? And it just fell. This was about a month ago, two months ago. Middle of summer. And the tree just started leaning over and we started noticing the branches are lower and lower to the ground. And then one day the whole thing just went 
I'm done. <laughs> Fell over, crushed, you know, against the, the gate there. We had to have it cut down and taken out and moved out of there. And I, I mean, I would have thought if we were going to lose a tree on our property, it would have been during one of the massive windstorms that we have. There was no wind. It was a calm, peaceful day, and the tree, the tree just gave out. Wherever it falls, there it lies, he said. It's, it's obvious, but we have no control over it. And then he goes into verse 4 and takes it a step further. And again, we, Fidalgo and Whidbey Islanders should get this. He who watches the wind will not sow. And he who looks at the clouds will not reap. The picture in verses 3 and 4 both are someone just staring up at the clouds going, I wonder if it's going to rain. I wonder if it's going to rain. Looking at the trees, I wonder if they're going to stand this winter. And not doing anything about it, just looking and wondering and basically doing nothing at all with life. Remember the admonition of the angels to the apostles when Jesus ascended? I I literally think there's got to be some humor here because it cracks me up every time I read it. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Jesus ascending. The apostles looking up. Mouths probably hanging open. I can imagine Peter with a little drool just... You know... What do we do now? There he goes. He still seems like when you know a balloon goes up and you watch it until you just can't see it anymore. Maybe you don't. I did when I was a kid. And there they are. And the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Implication, he's coming back. Stop standing around. Get praying, men. Remember, Jesus told you guys that. Go back to Jerusalem and wait until you receive power from on high. So there was nothing else they could do but, well, one of two things. They could stand there or they could pray. Prayer is far more powerful. Be bold in your prayer, by the way. Be bold. Approaching the Lord. We use the word on Sunday morning, beseech. Remember the word that means bind. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Bind God to His promise. That's bold praying. And and we're told, because of God's grace, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We see in Acts chapter 4, the people praying with boldness. Man, I was in a prayer group earlier this week for Jesse that was bold. Boy, we're all kind of going around giving our prayers. And and, uh, it comes around to Jackie Shorthouse. And she just blasts off praying for supernatural work of God and we believe you for your promises and we just believe that Jesse's going to make it through this surgery and he's going to be healed and he's going to be strengthened and she just I mean she right Les she was praying up a storm I'm going is this Jackie Shorthouse or Elijah who is praying here she was really on fire boldness then pray with some boldness approach the Lord with that kind of boldness don't stand around in essence is what he's saying Because you can stand there staring at the clouds or wondering about the wind, or you can raise a sail of faith and catch the wind of the Holy Spirit and do what He's doing. As Jesus said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, you do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Get that picture. If you are born of the Spirit, you are caught up in the wind of the Spirit. You are blown by the Spirit. And things that are blown don't stand still. Things moved by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit. You know what? To be born again is not to be born for the waiting room. You're born for life. 
Born to live. So get out. Be bold. Verse 5, Just as you do not know the path of the wind, and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Well, we don't know what God's going to do next, how He's going to move, where He's going to move, but we want to be a part of it. We want to be connected to it. We want to have our eyes open and see what He's doing and join Him in that. Romans chapter 8, verse 27 tells us, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you get, there's, there's a dynamic here that's awesome. The divine dynamic. This is what affects boldness in the heart of a believer. Let me read the verse again. Listen. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The thing that affects boldness in the heart of the believer is the Spirit in the heart of the believer. The Holy Spirit makes us bold. It's the power of the Spirit in us that that evokes that boldness, that desire to get out, to cast the Word out before the world, to be bold in prayer, to be on the move for the Lord. It's the presence of His Spirit in us. Our very confidence to step out and be bold comes from God, not from us. So if you're feeling wimpy, if you're feeling less than bold, if you're feeling a little fearful, especially in your spiritual life, the very first order of business is to get on your knees and pray for the power of the Spirit to be at work in you. Ask God to go before you. Pray that He would ignite what He's calling you to. Because there's no room for fearfulness among the people of God. Be bold. Take a risk. Move in the Spirit. Verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning. Seed is another picture of the Word. Do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed. So if you share with someone in the morning or share with someone in the evening, you never really know who the planting of the Word is going to bring about success. You don't know who's going to give their life to Jesus. So keep planting and keep sowing. Morning, evening, whenever you have opportunity. Be about the work of the Lord. You don't know if they're going to succeed, whether both of them alike will be good, that is morning or evening. Why would I do it if I don't know what kind of result there's going to be? He knows. He knows his result. He has it all mapped out. He knows what he's doing. So again, the boldness of the saint comes from the Spirit of God. So in the morning, be diligent in prayer in the evening, in all things. Function whether you know or not, you know that He knows. And the mind of the Spirit who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Father. He knows what He's doing. Let's just be a part of that. That's what He's indicating here. So be bold. Number two, be bright. Be bright. Verse 7. The light is pleasant and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Now, this may seem, you know, a little oxymoronical. (laughs) That on the one hand, he's saying, hey, light's good, be alive, be bright, rejoice in your days, but remember, dark days are coming and everything's futile. He's given balance here. It's stark talk. Going on in verse 9, I'll explain a little more. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant 
during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart. And put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. There's some very stark colors here. The bright joy of youth. He contrasts that with the dark colors of mortality. And so, to the young man, to the young woman, Kohalath would say, in essence here, carpe diem! Seize the day! Just carpe wisely. You know, that's the issue. It's not that you shouldn't seize the day, that you shouldn't go forward in life. Just do it with some degree of wisdom. He makes it clear, and note this, it's, it's important to catch. Kohalath makes it clear that the brilliance of the joy of life shines brightest when we do the right thing. When we do the moral thing. When we do the thing that is upright and righteous and good. Well, where do you get that? Let me clarify something for you in verse 9. This middle verse, really, middle sentence stuck on me and I, I had to figure this out, read it through a little more. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Man, left in that translation, it sounds like if it feels good, do it. But that's not what he's saying. Impulses, the word impulses, is the Greek word or Hebrew word we've seen before, direct, which means path. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of your manhood and follow the path of your heart. Now, in a secular way, you might look at that and go, yeah, but even the path of the heart, that's your impulses, your, right? That's not what he's saying. Follow the path of your heart, and the word there for desires, and the desires of your eyes, it's moreh in Hebrew, and it's the sight of your eyes, or the vision of your eyes. Follow the path of your heart, and the vision of your eyes, and these things will lead to judgment. Now, let's track this. The path of your heart and the vision of your eyes will lead to judgment. And that judgment can be dark. But it can also be bright. Judgment is not just a bad thing. Gang, judgment's a good thing. Christians here, which I assume is most of us, are you looking forward to judgment? I am. I am looking forward to judgment. Let me explain. Our view of judgment, it is so preconceived to be negative. When we hear the word judgment, we immediately go to, oh, that that day, that dark, difficult, terrible day, judgment day. Hey, I am looking forward to my judgment day. Go all the way back to what God told Cain before Cain murdered Abel, when he was struggling with the sin, the desire to put his brother out. And he said, Cain... Genesis 4-7, God speaking to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Won't you be bright? If you do the right thing, I mean, isn't that true? When you do the right thing, doesn't it feel good? Doesn't it feel good to do good? When you've done something right, or you've cared for someone, or you've served in some way, or you've, you've produced some positive, righteous thing in your life, it's like, I had a good day. Your countenance is lifted up. But, he says... If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And so when Kohala says, follow the ways of your heart and the sight or vision of your eyes, 
He's saying, you have a choice here. The desires of your heart can be the desires of the things that are of God. You know, the vision of your eyes can be a godly vision. Godly revelation. And it will lead you to a godly judgment, a positive judgment. Or, you can be impulsive, and you can follow what you want to see. You can look with worldly eyes, and you can end up with a negative judgment. A little more on judgment. In in all our talk about being saved by grace, which we are, there is a reality that doing the right thing brightens the eyes. Even more so, if you are in Jesus, you can be looking forward to judgment with bright joy. If you're in Jesus, guess what? We have a wonderful judgment that's coming. What are you talking about? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says, therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Isn't that? That's the desire. In fact, you know you're getting closer to Jesus when you find on a daily basis your desire is more to be with Him than it is to be in this flesh. And that's our desire, Paul says. We want to be with Him. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be judged? But I thought that was what the cross did, and now we have to appear before the judgment of Christ. Yes, the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now get this. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment of salvation. It's not a judgment of salvation. It's not whether you're good enough to be saved or bad enough to be condemned. The judgment seat of Christ is simply a giving of rewards based on how we've lived our lives once your salvation is already a done deal. I'm saved by grace. I'm going to heaven. I've got eternity locked. I am in the hand of Jesus and no one can snatch me out of His hand, John chapter 10. But, there's a judgment seat we get to come before. The Bema seat. That's the word there for seat. The Bema in the Greek in 2 Corinthians 5. And it's that three or four or five sometimes tiered judgment platform that judges would sit on in the Olympic Games in Greece. They'd sit and they would judge the competition. And then as the runners would come in, they would give out rewards. First, second, third, fourth. How you did. Here's your reward for the good that you've done. Uh, You didn't do so much, but here's a lollipop. You know, I mean, everybody gets something. You're going to be recompensed for your deeds. That's a good judgment. And believers, man, there's some motivation to do good things. There are rewards. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's... If you're reading the same Bible I'm reading, rewards for what we do. Jesus says in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And again, it's not salvation he's talking about. It's gifts based on your service among the saved. I am looking forward to the Bema seat. I am looking forward. It's going to be a great day. We gather the judgment seat of Christ and the ribbons are handed out. Praise the Lord, it's a good thing. But, whether it's a positive or a negative experience for you or for me, well, that's up to us. That depends on how we run. Again, it's not a salvation issue, but it's a gifts issue. So be bold. Be bright. 
Some other practical encouragements along this, with this, this brightness, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Be bright. Be bright for Jesus. Ephesians 5.13 All things become visible when they're exposed to the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Which is why, by the way, we want to walk in the light as He is in the light. Stop walking in darkness, He would say. And even to us believers, what are the things that you hide? Where are those dark, shadowy areas in your life? The things that maybe you're involved in that, uh, as long as the church doesn't find out, as long as my Christian friends aren't aware of what I'm doing right now, we'll just kind of keep this under wraps. Put it in the light. Man, bring everything into the light. Everything. For this reason it says, Paul goes on, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He says in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Be bold, be bright. You have two directions you can choose in your life. Both are going to result in judgment, but it's either going to be a good judgment or a bad judgment. And number three, Third and final one, be ready. Be ready. Be bold, be bright. I couldn't find a word that started with be, so we're just going to go with ready. Okay? Be ready. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Hang on a second. Remember your Creator. You might want to circle Creator. This is interesting to me. Suddenly, here at the beginning of, of what we've termed chapter 12, suddenly Koheleth leaps beyond life under the sun. He tears off the mask of the humanist and he returns us, the assembly, to the very source of our existence. He says, if you're living meaningless, all this stuff we've talked about, the vanity under the sun, guess what? Remember your Creator. Let's get back to the source of our lives. Our lives that may seem meaningless right now, you want to figure out meaning in your life, you go back to the source. He doesn't say Elohim here. Remember God in the days of... No, he says remember your Creator. And the word Creator is interesting to me. It's bara in the Hebrew. So, so bara means to make something out of nothing. To literally create something from nothing. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created bara, the heavens and the earth. And right here he uses the same word. Remember your bara, your Creator in the days of your youth. And this is brilliant preaching. Do you see what he just did with one sentence here? The entire book of Ecclesiastes lands on this, hinges on this one sentence. Vanity is nothingness, but hey, God creates something from nothing. So if your life is meaningless, God works best in meaninglessness. He works best in the emptiness. He works best where you feel like there's nothing going on. God says, great, now I can create something in your life. And people try and hobble together stuff to hand to God. Look what I've made. Can you do something with this? And God says, well, I'd really rather start fresh. I'd rather start with nothing. Let's just go back to the beginning. Remember your Creator. For the man, for the woman living in futility, only the Creator can make something out of nothing. Remember Him. But He says, do it now. This is the apex. We've led all the way up to this moment. And he says, here's the deal. Remember your Abara. Remember the one 
who can answer your nothingness. He goes on and says, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. And those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song will sing softly, or literally, they will be brought low. It says in verse 5, Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags himself along. The caper berry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And he's talking about, he's saying, he's pleading, remember your Creator. Remember the One who can make something of you now. Because the days are coming all too quickly when the age will set in and life will become tiresome and old and difficult. Let me explain a few things in here. Go back to verse 5. It says, furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, the caper berry is ineffective. These three things are interesting. They're word pictures Kohalath is using. The almond tree blossoming. In the middle of this despairing picture, all of a sudden he says, oh, the almond tree blossoms. Well, why does he say that? Well, you may or may not know this, but almond trees blossom in the winter. And he's talking about the winter of life. He's talking about that period of time in life when it's cold, when you're dragging along. It's not the rebirth of the spring. It is the end of the year. It is the end of the cycle. It is the end of life. And by the way, the almond tree, when it blossoms, it starts by blossoming reddish, but just before the blossoms fall to the ground, they turn as white as snow. And then they fall. In the same way that a man, that a woman, will turn white as snow, the hair turning white or or gray on us. I've already got a little smattering of it. Right here. Right here. Just enough to annoy. You know, and occasionally right there. The almond tree. A picture of advanced old age. The grasshopper. The grasshopper who's been hopping about and playing all summer. Suddenly the winter comes and he's in trouble. But it's a great picture. Because if you've seen a grasshopper, right? We had them all over Southern California growing up and they scared me. Because they came out of nowhere, man. You'd be walking along and all of a sudden, hop right in front of you and they'd freak you out. And they were so spastic. But watch grasshoppers because as the fall continues on, you'll see less and less of them because they're dying. The colder it gets, the slower they move until they will sit there on the ground and you can literally walk up to them and just go smack. Because they, I'd like to move, I just don't have it in me anymore. That's the picture. The grasshopper drags himself along, moving slowly in the cold of the winter, and then he dies. The caper berry. I like this one. The caper berry is ineffective. What does that mean? 
This particular berry is known in the ancient world to work as a stimulus both for the appetite and, yes, as an aphrodisiac. thought I'd use that word so young ones can ask their parents at home. And note what he says about it. The caper berry is ineffective. It ain't working. Just ain't working anymore. The whole thing here is a picture of old age. Old age. Verse 4, the whole picture of this house is a house that's in disrepair and in shambles. The watchmen tremble because the house is falling apart. The mighty men stoop. There's, you know, it, it's, it's bowed down. Grinding one stand idle because there's not many people in the house anymore. What was once a great house, a glorious house, perhaps the picture of a strapping young man is now, well, it's kind of bowed and it's not functioning like it used to. And the picture again is of advanced old age. And you know, let's just be honest, these bodies were not meant to last. They just weren't. For all of the skill and the wonder of the surgeons working on Jesse Miles, unless Jesus comes first, Jesse's body is going to give out eventually like every one of our bodies will. And that's not depressing. It's not depressing if you're in Jesus. It's the way our bodies go. And God intentionally gave us temporary bodies so that we would look forward to and be excited about our glorified eternal bodies that He has promised for us. And the picture here, it doesn't have to be stark. It's a clear picture of the advancing of age and in verse 6 of actually death itself. Look down at verse 6. He says, Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Two pictures here that he gives. The silver cord which holds the golden bowl is believed to be a lamp. The golden bowl holding an oil lamp in it held up to the ceiling by a silver cord and all it takes is one tiny link in that silver cord to snap and the bowl falls and breaks and the light goes out. Death. That's the picture. Or the pitcher by the well. You keep a pitcher by the well so that you can draw up the water from the well, fill the pitcher and have a drink, but the pitcher's shattered. When you go to the well to drink, there's no pitcher. And then you go to spin the wheel on the well to turn the wheel at the cistern and the wheel is broken. So you can't get water out of the well anymore. So now you're in the dark and no life-giving water can be drawn. You're lacking two things here. You're lacking light and you're lacking water. It's death. Now the obvious interpretation of this entire passage of of verses 1 through 8 is in the context of being ready. It's, guys, be ready. Remember your Creator now because here's what's coming. Death is on the march. Death is coming. Life will end. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Remember your Creator before it's too late. Face the futility now. Futility is not futility in the eyes of a believer in Jesus. That faith just washes over futility, doesn't it? And we realize this is just the deal. But there's a less obvious possibility in the language of the preacher. I don't know about you, but for me, what emerges here in his description is a striking illustration. Not just of the end of an individual's life, but of the end of the life of this present world. In fact, I see a picture here of the tail end of the tribulation. Watch this with me. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember your Creator. 
in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, the evil days come. And the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. Now, on the one hand, that speaks of the loss of eyesight in old age. But on the other hand, we know there's a time coming when sun, moon, and stars will go dark. The Bible explains it, talks about that. When you say, I have no delight in them, when the clouds return after that rain, their rain, which means that it just keeps raining, it stays in this perpetual winter season. Joel the prophet, chapter 3, verse 14 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Revelation chapter 8, verse 12, the fourth angel sounded. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Which means, think about this, at that point in the tribulation period, one-third of the entire day and night is complete blackness, complete darkness. No light, not even a star can be seen in the dark of night. But it goes beyond that. Toward the end of the tribulation, Jesus said, Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Not just a third of the time, completely. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And that closes out the tribulation. He says right after that, then comes the Son of Man on the clouds. Then Jesus returns. But right before it, everything goes dark. Look at verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 12. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, the mighty men stoop. The grinding ones stand idle because they're few. Why do the grinding ones stand idle because they're few? Well, perhaps because, as Jesus said, two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. So there are fewer grinders because some of them have been caught up in the rapture of the church. Some are just gone. And so there are less to do the work of the grinding. Verse 4, he says, The doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, which there could be a picture of alarm. The alarm goes off, and one wakes up, and all the daughters of song will sing softly, and it's not picturing a pretty soft melody. It's their songs are low or just about out because of the terror, because of the dread. Furthermore, verse 5, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. And the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, the caperberry is ineffective because in that season nothing works. Man, you think life is futile now? Life without Jesus, life without God in the tribulation goes from bad to worse. Nothing will bring satisfaction. Nothing will bring pleasure. All is terror and dread. For while for man goes to his eternal home, while mourners go about in the street. This world has not known mourning like it will know morning in the tribulation. A horrifying time. Verse 6. Remember him before the silver cord is broken, the golden bowl is crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, and the well at the cistern is crushed. Now listen closely to this. Light and water. Light and water described in verse 6. Two things that will be unavailable in the tribulation. I'm not talking about physical light and drinking water. I'm talking about light as in revelation. It will be hard to come by because the Holy Spirit will no longer be present in the world during the tribulation. Suddenly, 
And God will be given signs and He will be giving wonders and He will be trying to get people's attention. But the Spirit, working to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment, the Spirit will no longer be present here. So no light. Revelation at that time is going to be trumped by rebellion. Even what God is revealing, the heart of man will be so rebellious, there comes a point, I've called it the point of no return in the tribulation, where the rebellion of man is so strong that no one, Revelation says several times, no one will repent so as to be saved. And it's about the midpoint of the tribulation, where hearts are so hardened and so cold that man will just begin shouting back and fighting back and rebelling completely, even against the miraculous things God is showing and the proof that there is a God, they won't care. They'll be fighting against Him. So no light. Water. No living water. No Holy Spirit. He's not present in the tribulation. Well, where do you get that? That the Spirit's not present on earth in the tribulation. Well, you Bible students know. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Seven times Jesus says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In those two opening chapters. Then something happens in Revelation chapter 4. Suddenly we're in heaven. Revelation 4 and 5. In heaven with the Lord. Chapter 6, you see the tribulation begin to kick off and spin into high gear. You never again, ever again, through that tribulation period, hear of the Holy Spirit at work on planet Earth. In fact, in Revelation 13, verse 9, the same thing is said that Jesus said in Revelation 2 and 3, hey, if anyone has a hear, an ear, let him hear. But you know what's left off? What the Spirit says to the churches. He doesn't say that. He says, if you have an ear, let him hear. The Spirit is unavailable now to bring revelation. No mention of the church after chapter 3. No mention of the Holy Spirit. Revelation 14.13 says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. But note that in Revelation 14, the Holy Spirit is speaking from heaven. He's in heaven. So light and water are not here. And when God's Spirit has removed from this world with the church, truly all hell will break loose. Man will get what he wants at that point. Rebellious man, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want your presence here. Okay, let's show you how extreme that really is. What life is like without the blessing of a holy God. The despair of meaninglessness that we have been looking at through the secular humanist eyes of this book will increase to a dramatic point. The despair of meaninglessness in old age and in death today will pale in comparison to the emptiness of the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Rick, why do you you talk about this so much? (laughs) Why do you bring it up again? You know what? Let's face it. For some people in the world, this just sounds ridiculous. 
It does. There are people who, if they were sitting here tonight, would go, okay, yeah, you're just going to work up all your religious people, get them all fearful, get them all freaked out, maybe they'll give more to your church. That's what you're doing, aren't you? (laughs) And people think that it's just crazy talk, this tribulation stuff, this rapture stuff, this second coming of Jesus stuff. And they say, as Peter said that they would say, everything just goes on as it always has. It just sounds ridiculous. This, this, this crazy world gone mad, wrath of God, Armageddon out of here. You know, that kind of stuff. And don't think, by the way, that the compassion in me doesn't from time to time when I hear that or see it, stop and go, well, are we getting crazy here? I mean, I read an article in the news and I go, well, are we too far out here with this whole concept of tribulation and rapture? Am I, am I reading into Scripture rather than getting from? And I ask that question from time to time. And you know, every time I return to Scripture, I hear the gracious warning repeatedly. It continues to be there. And I see the truth, obviously. And I read through Revelation again and I see, wow, no, I mean, this is what it says. So either God is really pulling a number on us, which I don't believe, or this is the truth. Whether people want to believe it or not. And i got to share something with you real quickly here. An article that, that Spence sent to me a couple of weeks back and I thought was fascinating. It's from Israel Today magazine, Sunday, September 25th. And it's entitled, Jesus and a Palestinian State. Let me just, I'm going to let the article speak for itself. It's very interesting. The Palestinian statehood bid provided a, flat, a platform for many views and positions regarding the Middle East, including those of evangelical Christians who, listen, no longer believe in the validity of the promises contained in the Bible. Evangelical Christians who don't buy it anymore. In the run-up to Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas officially requesting UN membership for the state of Palestine, Carl Medeiros, a recognized expert on the Middle East and on Middle East Christians, suggested on CNN's belief blog that Jesus would support the Palestinian statehood motion. So how would Jesus vote this week if he had a seat at the UN, Medeiros asked. Surely love and compassion and justice and peacemaking would top his list of concern for all involved. Maybe he would give a new parable, the parable of the good Palestinian offending all who would hear. Medeiros continued by deriding the Christian Zionist movement and its insistence on a literal reading of the Bible. (laughs) You crazy people. You crazy people actually believing that this book is literal. Where do you get off? He goes on, he says, In their minds, the modern Israeli state is not only a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, listen, in a bizarre twist that leaves most outsiders dumbfounded, Christian Zionists say the Bible predicts that Jews and Palestinians will forever be at war until Jesus returns. A bizarre twist? Or a blessed truth? He goes on. Medeiros' remarks were hotly debated in various publications, but it is not his personal view of the situation that is troubling. Medeiros was merely the mouthpiece of a, listen, postmodern, humanistic-infected strand of Christianity that no longer believes the Bible carries any literal meaning beyond the commandments regarding basic gestures of goodwill and proper moral behavior. 
In other words, while it is still important to love one's neighbor and not to steal, passages like Jeremiah 31 verses 36 through 38 or Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 28, and you can read those on your own time, passages like this that confirm the eternal nature of Israel's divine right to the land are, in Medeiros' words, quote, obscure Old Testament promises. In order to cement their position as the sane Christians, Medeiros and others like him will highlight the often unsympathetic positions of those perceived lunatics who do not hold fast to the Bible's every, or who do hold fast to the Bible's every promise. So I guess I'm a lunatic. You are listening to the ravings and the rantings of a crazy man tonight because I absolutely believe that the promises of God stand. And Scripture is the true and irrevocable Word of God. I do believe that. Wholeheartedly. He says, It is true that in their zealousness, a good many Christian Zionists often spout rhetoric that is hateful toward the Palestinian Arabs. And that's a good point, and we ought not ever do that. Because Palestinian Arabs and Muslims and anyone outside of Jesus today needs Jesus. And need the love of Christ that we can give, not our judgment. But, going on, it is also true, as Medeiros pointed out, that Yeshua told us to love our enemies, even though those seeking Israel's demise. He's right. But, this point of supporting Israel, uncritically, Medeiros wrongly claims, and opposing a Palestinian statehood is not what Christian Zionism is really about. Not at its core. Christian Zionism, and if you're not sure what I mean by this, he's going to explain it, is the recognition that long-awaited biblical promises and prophecies are being fulfilled in our time. It is about getting behind that fulfillment and opposing efforts to reverse it. And though God may not actually need our help in in preventing that attempted reversal, one day we will be held accountable for the stand we took or didn't take. And we will. Ultimately, it's a question of whether or not God keeps His word and has the sovereignty in our lives to do so. He says, Christian Zionists believe the scriptures are true, active, and alive today. They believe that by acknowledging the truth that God has given the land of Israel to the Jewish people as an everlasting inheritance, we are acknowledging God's sovereignty. If God can renege on a promise to Israel that He repeatedly labeled as everlasting, surely we should all be concerned that other promises can be annulled or rewritten like the promise of eternal life for members of an equally sinful church. Interesting. Are we crazy? Rick, are you nuts for reading into or looking at these verses and going, wow, that sounds like the tribulation? Look, whether or not Kohalath was specifically talking about the tribulation and the end of life as we know it and the winter years of the earth, he certainly was calling out, don't wait. Remember your Creator now. Change direction now. Give your life to Jesus now. And if you've already done it, be bright, be bold, and be ready now, believers in Jesus. That is our calling not to put off to tomorrow or next week or next year what God wants us to do right now. We do it now. And we get out there with the boldness and the brightness and the readiness that is called for. Because, verse 7, the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. It is all empty. It is all futility. 
There is no meaning if you don't remember two things. Where you came from, that is your Creator. And where you are going, that is according to verse 7, back to God. Remember where you came from, your Creator, and remember you are going back to God. Now some might read verse 7, the Spirit will return to God who gave it, and say, well, isn't that kind of comforting? You know, I just lived my life, and my Spirit, which came from God, is going to go back to God in some, you know, uh, esoteric way. I'll be back in the presence of God. And you believers, you know that's not what he's saying. Every spirit of man will return to God. Every creature will face their Creator. And I am talking about Judgment Day. And I am talking about that point. Hebrews 4.13 puts it this way, we all will, will be before our Creator, Him with whom we have to do. We have to face Him. You can face Him now and, and accept Jesus' punishment at Calvary 2,000 years ago and have that aspect of your judgment done and look forward to the judgment seat of Christ. Or you can wait and have your judgment then, but every creature has to do with their Creator eventually. So the sermon is finished. The listener, humanist or believer, is left to grapple with where they are under the sun. He leaves it hanging out there. He says, here's what you've got to do, but you've got to choose. You've got to make that decision yourself while the sun sun still shines. But note this, here's the good news. At the end of all this futility, um, at least in this moment, we're still alive. The humanist, still alive. In other words, there's still a little time because we're still breathing. Death is rattling its chains. The end is drawing near, but we ain't dead yet. So believers, there's still time to be bold, be bright, and be ready. Non-believers, there's still time to choose the Creator. But time is short. And Paul said in Ephesians 5.15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Verses 9 through the end of the book are a postscript to the sermon. The sermon given, the notes are set down, The book is closed, and the postscript reads as follows. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher, Koheleth, also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Uh, One commentarian that I read said you could call Koheleth, you could call this man the patron saint of teachers. And you know what they say, old teachers never die. They just lose their class. Verse 11. The words of wise men are like goads. Goads? Cattle prods, in essence. A goad is a cattle prod. It's a long stick with a sharp end in use to poke the animals and get them to go where they're supposed to go. And in fact, Jesus was using goads against Saul, wasn't he? You remember this, Acts 26.14? Saul said, or Paul said, looking back, thinking back, said, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. What do you mean? 
He means, Saul, I've been trying to direct you here, and you're fighting against me, and it's starting to really, it's starting to prick your conscience. It's starting to hurt. It's not working out real well. You're trying to go against the direction I'm trying to lead you. I'm directing you. And that's what Kohalath means when he says the words of wise men are like goats. We can say the words of Scripture. That's what they are. They direct us. They lead us. Sometimes they poke, don't they? Sometimes we see the poke and we go, okay, I, I got it. I'm going. And the Word of God leads us, directs us. The words of the wise. And we know the wisdom comes from Christ. The words of wise men are like goats, and masters of these collections are white, like well-driven nails. Now listen, the, the well-driven nails here doesn't refer to persons. It refers to not the masters, but the collections. Okay? The well-driven nails are not the persons, but the proverbs of the wise. Well-driven nails. What I'm saying is it's the truth. These wise men are giving out truth, and they're like well-driven nails because absolute truth sticks. Think of it as a nail in the brain. The truth sticks in the brain. The, the, the relativity, it floats off. It's always changing. You can't hold on to it. You can't hang your hat on it. But the truth, like a nail in a wall, you can hang your hat on that. It's stuck in. It's good. It's solid. I say that to say it is never the messenger who stays with you. It is always the message. We have... I haven't actually heard this in a while, which I, I suppose is a good thing, but uh, a few years ago, someone said, after I'd had some heart issues about three years ago, someone brought up to one of our elders, what do we do if, if something happened to Rick? And what does the bridge do if, if Rick has a heart attack and dies? What do we do? Really? Really? It's never the messenger. It is always the message. And it never matters who the preacher is, whether it's Kohalit, whether it's one of the apostles, whether it's one of us, it doesn't matter. What matters is the message. It's not the man. It's the truth. It is the truth that we all hang on. It is the truth that nails us. The well-driven nails. And they are given, he says very clearly, by one shepherd. One shepherd. It's not a bunch of wise guys getting their heads together and producing something that people can believe in. It all comes from one. One shepherd. And do you realize what Kohalath has just done here? He's led us by the nose from a distant concept of God, Elohim, back around to our hands-on Creator, Bara, and from there we're stunned to discover that our Creator is in fact our Shepherd. We just went from Elohim out there to Shepherd right here. From distant to intimate. All of this that we've been studying is from the Shepherd. Jesus. Who said, I am the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. What fold? Israel. I have other sheep. I have Gentiles who I am going to as well. And I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with, Jesus says, one shepherd. Verse 12, he says, But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. No exemptions. <laughs> no exceptions. The, the study of many books is wearying to the body. I'll just say this. 
You can read all kinds of books about the Word of God, or you can read the Word of God. I'm not opposed to Christian devotionals and books and Christian living encouragement. What I'm opposed to is Christians who go to Christian bookstores and read and buy Christian books and never crack the Bible. That makes no sense to me. You're never getting to the core truth. Go to the truth. Use the other stuff to encourage and and, and to build up. And there's some good stuff out there. And that's great. But don't allow the writings of whoever to replace the Word of God. That's the truth. And by the way, not worrying. The more you are into the Word of God, the less worrying and the more exciting and invigorating it truly is. Verse 13, the conclusion. When all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person, everyone. No one's off the hook here. Keep the commandments. Fear God. But but I can't keep the commandments. Then put your faith in the one who did. You can't keep them. You're right. But Jesus did perfectly. And Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the end of the law. Christ, Paul said, is the end of the law. So He fulfills the whole law in and of Himself. We put our faith in Jesus, and guess what? We have kept the law. We love God and we love our neighbor as ourselves as Jesus commanded and we have kept the law. It's fantastic. Verse 14, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Wow. If God cares this much to note every single piddly little act that has taken place on planet earth, if he is that engaged and that involved, then truly nothing is meaningless. Nothing's pointless. There can really be no vanity if God is that intimately concerned with all aspects of our lives. Last thing, and I'll let you go tonight. Isn't Isn't it great, marvelous really, how we see this very truth in the teachings of Jesus? What truth? The fact that everything matters to God. The fact that He notices everything. Little things that you and I would skip over every day. Man, I crossed the Deception Pass Bridge, taking my daughter to school, and nine days out of ten, I don't even see the beauty. I'm so used to it. Every now and then, God says, Hey, look at what I did. Take a look. And my eyes open and go, I do live in an amazing place. But more often than not, I skip over the little things. I'm too busy, right? Not Jesus. The Lord catches everything. Think about His teaching. Most insignificant things that have value to Jesus. A sparrow that falls. A lily in the field. A hair on my head. I like that one. A scattered seed. A lost coin. A lost sheep. A lost boy. All these things to God are priceless. So much for vanity. Father, thank You for caring about us the way You do. It is breathtaking, Lord, that we have a God who is aware of every tiny, intimate moment of our lives. And though we are faithless, You remain faithful. Though we are forgetful, You never forget a one of us. You see what we're doing all the time. As someone once said, Lord, You can't take Your eyes off us. What a blessing. 
And we have a Father who loves this world and loves the people of this world so desperately that you proved your love in Jesus on the cross. Wow. Father, may we not live the futility that so many live because they don't realize your desire for such intimate involvement in life. May we be bearers of the wonderful meaning and purpose and fulfillment of the gospel in this world. Father, spur us on to greater works until Jesus comes. In Jesus' name, amen.